What the hell is up, y'all? We a hot mess, but we still here. Yes, kind of like barely here, but like just enough here to count. Yeah, yeah. But since y'all missed us, welcome back. We gonna give you a double feature. I'm throwing up like gang signs. It doesn't matter because you can't see anyone. <laughs> yeah, so uh, stick around for the long haul here. <laughs> Cause the first one's a little lengthy, the second one, eh, not so much. Eh, we'll get through it. Ain't nobody worried. Right. So, did you ever watch that series of American Horror Story cover where that sexy axe murderer? I was trying to say sexy ass murderer, but <laughs> since he is the axe murderer, it fits. Uh, hooked up with Jessica Lange. Yeah, we gotta talk about it. I was just going to say, do you just, do you like jazz? Because if you don't, you would have been killed in these times. topic that we're going to discuss is the Axeman of New Orleans. So he was an American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and surrounding communities including Greta from May 1918 to October 1919. Press reports during the height of public panic about the killings mentioned similar murders as early as 1911, but recent researchers have called these reports into question. The Axeman was never identified, and the murderers remain unsolved to this day. What? I mean, I would hope the man would be dead. Oh, he's gotta be dead. He's gotta be dead. <clears throat> he mainly targeted Italian immigrants and Italian Americans. And if you think about it, if he was only active, like, from 1918 to 1919, that's probably, like, arguably, like, one of the only murder weapons he had. I mean, probably. It was just a an axe. So, I mean, I'm sure there was other things, maybe. Adapt, overcome. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know when guns were invented. They probably did have them in like the 18th. Yes. <laughs> we don't know our history, guys. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I ain't a history major. So, as the killer's name implies, the victims usually were attacked with an axe which often belong to the victims themselves, ironically. Because everybody chop them wood, so they stay warm during the winter. But it's New Orleans. So. I mean, it, it probably gets cold. I mean, yeah. That's like probably people, not like here. I mean, no, but that's like people in Florida. It gets to like 50 in Florida, and they're like, it's so cold. <laughs> Why'd you give an accent? <laughs> okay, sorry. It's so cold out here. Even them gators ain't even moving. <laughs> Uh, in most cases, a panel on a back door of a home was removed by a chisel, which along with the panel was left on the floor near the door. The intruder then attacked one or more of the residents with either an axe or a straight razor, Ooh. and the crimes were not motivated. The crimes were not motivated by robbery, and the perpetrator never removed items from the victims' homes. How are they not waking up? Like you just hear them like. Is they chisel away at your doorway? I mean, who knows? But better yet, why wouldn't you steal some shit? I mean, I don't know. If I'm going to go through the effort of breaking into your house and then killing you, I'm going to take some shit. Why does it not that didn't have anything? Who cares? I'm sure there was jewelry back then and other stuff to take. I mean, a freaking frying pan for all I know. I would have took food. And that, there, taking food. I mean, <laughs> shit, I don't know. Oh, my God. 
Okay. So, the majority of the Axeman's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were ethnically motivated. Many media outlets sensationalized the aspects of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement, despite the lack of evidence. I know Kaylee is tired of hearing me talk about it, but I mean, if this was straight the Sopranos. fucking Sopranos! Um, I'm just saying, I don't think... I don't think that the mafia is going to be chiseling away at your door. Like, if they got beef, they're just going to straight roll up and chop your head off. And then they'll sling some money at any witnesses. But that's just me and, uh, you know, HBO Max motivating that. Anywho, some crime analysts have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps a sadist specifically seeking female victims like, could you imagine if that was like a craigslist ad <laughs> like male seeking female i want to do some sadistic shit may involve straight areas or acts don't know depends if i'm feeling cute might delete this later <laughs> might delete this later <laughs> uh, criminologist colon and colon 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 and damon wilson hypothesized that the Axemen killed male victims only when they obstructed his attempts to murder women. And this was supported by cases in which the women of the household was murdered, but not the man. A less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music. <laughs> suggested by a letter attributed to the killer in which he stated that he would spare the lives of those who played jazz in their homes. Which, going back to American Horror Story, that was like one thing. That, like... They showed in the shows his, like, history, like, you gotta play jazz. Well, yeah, this this serial killer was actually used in a lot of different movies and mm. horror flicks and stuff like that, so. Of course, of course. <clears throat> um, and as Kayla said, the axiom was not caught or identified, and his crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. The murderer's identity remains unknown to this day. Hashtag, he's probably dead. Although various possible identifications of varying plausibility have been proposed. On March 13, 1919, a letter purporting to be from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again at 15 minutes past midnight on the night of March 19th, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. Um, that night, all of New Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity and professional and amateur bands played jazz parties at hundreds of houses around town and there were no murders that night. Dun, dun, dun! Like, I couldn't imagine. I don't even know. But it kind of makes you wonder if this is what's, like, started the whole jazz fling in this era for that area. I don't know. I was just sitting here thinking, like, I don't know that I really like jazz. But then now that I think about it, I don't know that I've ever truly given jazz a chance or, like, been exposed to or listened to it. It's not bad. Eh. Not something I would listen to every day. Fair. So, here's where this letter is super freaky and kind of strange. So, but this is the letter that was put in the newspaper. Hottest Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans. The Axeman... They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. And the hottest hell that he's referencing is actually New Orleans. He's not even talking about actual hell. I don't know about that. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> if you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only assume me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they never... For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. 
I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that either person shall be that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Jazz it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, and it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. The Axe Man. (laughs) just in case you were wondering i just got COVID. no so yeah that's a a little strange kind of odd i mean if i read that in the newspaper today i'd say that this person was absolutely batshit crazy well yeah and the fact that he used such weird phrases and wordy words is just like what you doing homie yeah he's down there and he's probably just somebody that thinks that he's more important than he really is and it's only because he's gotten away with it for so long if this was in fact even the real axe man yeah not just some normal person like haha watch me fuck with everybody (laughs) yeah like watch him watch everybody screw to get a jazz band going just because i put this in the paper or whatever so um, some of the victims that uh, died at the hands of the quote-unquote axe man um, were starting with Joseph Maggio, an Italian grocer, and his wife Catherine were attacked on May 23rd, 1918 while sleeping alongside each other at their home on the corner of Upper Lawn and Magnolia Streets where they conducted a bedroom or where they conducted a barroom and grocery. The killer broke into the home and then proceeded to cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. <laughs> Upon leaving, he bashed their heads in with an axe, perhaps in order to conceal the real cause of death. Which, to me, makes no sense. Because if you slip their throats, bashing their head in has nothing to do with that. Unless, maybe they just overlook it. Which is not good. Exactly. It's two different areas. But yeah. Joseph survived the attack but died minutes after being discovered by his brothers, Jake and Andrew. In the apartment, law enforcement agents found the bloody clothes of the murderer as he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene, which may explain why he's never been caught if he's changing clothes at the scene. So he's leaving and it just looks like every day. But you gotta think, like, he's leaving behind DNA, but this is back in... I mean, yeah, girl. Way back when, so... Um... A complete search of the premises was not completed by police after the bodies were removed, yet later, the bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighboring property. Police ruled out out robbery, that's a lot of R's, as motivation for the attacks as money and valuables left in plain sight were not stolen by the intruder. The razor used to kill the couple was found to belong to Andrew Maggio, the brother of the deceased, who conducted a barber shop on Camp Street. His employee, Esteban Torres, told police that Maggio had removed the razor from his shop two days prior to the murder, explaining that he had wanted to have a nick honed from the blade. Maggio, who lived in the adjoining apartment to his brother's residence, discovered his slain brother and sister-in-law roughly two hours after the gruesome attacks had occurred upon hearing strange groaning noises through the wall. Maggio blamed his failure to hear any noise related to the attacks that occurred in the early morning hours on his intoxicated state. As he had returned home after a night of celebration prior to his departure, 
to join the Navy. Police, however, were nonetheless surprised that he failed to hear the intruder as he made a forced entry into the home. Andrew Maggio became the police chief's prime suspect in the crime, yet was released after investigators were unable to break down his statement, as well as his account of an unknown man who was supposedly seen lurking near the residence prior to the murders. Catherine Maggio was the wife of Joseph Maggio. Her throat was cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from her shoulders. <sighs> Unlike Joseph, Catherine did not survive long after the attack, if at all, and died before her husband's brothers found them. I like how it's like, uh, Joseph Maggio survived the attack, but died two hours after his brother found him. Like, then he didn't survive the attack. I mean, he, he did survive the initial attack. He just technically just didn't survive the healing process of said attack. Okay, either way, he was dead on site. DOS. Either from direct infliction of wounds or being left for two hours because your brother's supposedly a drunk barber. <laughs> Sweeney Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. I just think it's crazy that her head was almost severed. Oh, with head. So, another victim, and I'm probably going to butcher this last name, is... Louis Basumer and his mistress Harriet Lowe. They were attacked in the early morning hours of June 27, 1918 in the quarters at the back of his grocery, which was located at the quarter of DeGiorneos and La Harp Streets. <laughs> I would say Dorgenois. Dorgenois. But that's just me. I don't know. I'm not a New Orleanian. <clears throat> you guys choose for us because we don't have a clue. <laughs> So, Basumer was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Lowe was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived at the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery in order to make a routine delivery. Zanka found both Basumer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood, both bleeding from their heads. The axe, which had belonged to Basumer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Basumer later stated to police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet. Almost immediately, police arrested potential suspect, Louis Obicon? <laughs> or Oibicon? We're Oibicon. not sure. Oibicon. A then 41-year-old African-American man who had been employed in Basumer's store just a week before the attacks. No evidence existed which could have proved the man guilty, yet police arrested him nonetheless, stating that Obacon had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Shortly after the attempted murder, Lowe stated that she remembered having been attacked by a mulatto man, yet her statement was discounted by police due to her disillusioned state. Robbery was said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks, yet no money or valuables were removed from the couple's home. Oibacon was later released as police were unable to gather sufficient evidence to hold him accountable for the crimes. Media attention soon turned to Basumer himself as a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were discovered in a trunk at the man's home. Police suspected that Basumer was a German spy and government officials began a full investigation of his potential espionage. Weeks later, after going in and out of consciousness, Harriet Lowe told police that she thought Basumer was in fact a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, Basumer was released, and two lead investigators of the case were demoted due to unacceptable police work. So basically, they just didn't fucking do their job. Shocker. Basumer was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet Lowe, who lay dying in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, stated that it was he who had attacked her more than a month previously with his hatchet. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919 after a 10-minute jury deliberation. Good God. Not a very long time to deliberate there. 
Harriet Lowe was attacked while in bed with Louise Bazumer. As is mentioned previously, Lowe was hacked above her left ear and found unconscious at the scene of the crime before she was rushed to Charity Hospital. Lowe became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and often false statements relating to both the attacks and the character of Mr. Bazumer, some of which are described in the preceding descriptions. Huh. And these are those. The Times. Pick a year. I don't know. <laughs> the Times Picayune sensationalized Lowe and her outspoken nature upon discovering that she was not the wife of Basumer but his mistress. <gasps> a charity hospital source discovered the scandal. When Basumer asked to be directed to the room of Miss Harriet Lowe, it was inevitably denied access as no woman by that name was a patient. Basumer's legal wife arrived from Cincinnati in the days immediately following this discovery, which further inflamed the ongoing drama. Lowe further gained media attention as she repeatedly made statements which voiced her dislike of the New Orleans Chief of Police, as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. After the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, Lowe told reporters from the Times-Picayune <laughs> that she suspected that it had been Chief Mooney who first informed the press of the scandal. Despite the scandal and her delirious statements, which suggested that Basumer was a German spy, Lowe returned to the home she shared with Basumer weeks after the attack. One side of her face was partially paralyzed due to the severity of the attack, and Lowe died August 5th, 1918, just two days after doctors performed surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. Just prior to her death, Lowe told authorities that she suspected it was Louise Basumer who had attacked her. So she's pretty much just like went into this, <clears throat> oh, I want all the attention, spiraling into make it all about me. Yeah, it was my not real husband that done it. Listen, though, could, going back to Ovacon, the black guy that was arrested because he couldn't, like, give him information about his whereabouts. Listen, I can't even remember sometimes what I did one day, two days ago, or even this morning, and I could have been arrested. I'm just saying. I, I'm right there with you. Honestly, I can't remember shit, especially since I have this terrible brain fog from being sick. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what I did last week. Hmm. No clue. I couldn't even like find details of work. No idea. Couldn't tell you where I went because I don't remember. Huh. So the next victim is Anna Schneider, and she was attacked in the early morning hours of August fifth, nineteen eighteen. Uh, the twenty-eight year old was eight months pregnant, and she was the daughter of Elmira. Nope. She was not the daughter of Elmira. She lived on Elmira Street. <laughs> and she awoke to find a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open. Her face was completely covered in blood. Miss Schneider was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days after the incident. Her husband told police that nothing was stolen from the home besides six or seven dollars that had been in his wallet. The windows and doors of the apartment appeared to have not been forced open and authorities came to the conclusion that the woman was most likely attacked with a lamp that had been on a nearby table. James Gleason, who police said was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly after Schneider was found. Gleason was later released due to a complete lack of evidence and stated that he originally ran from authorities because he had so often been arrested. So, just imagine you're an ex-con, just minding your business, but they know you're an ex-con, so they're going to take you back to jail, even though they can, they have nothing to tie you to the scene of the crime. Yeah. Cool. Lead investigators began to publicly speculate that the attack was related to the previous incidents involving Bessemer and Maggio. Joseph Romano was an elderly man... Uh, living with his two nieces. Oh, that is a completely separate uh, victim. So, <laughs> pause. <laughs> then, then we'll go into it. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Joseph Romano was an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. On August 10th, 1918, Pauline and Mary awoke to the sound of a commotion in the adjoining uh, room where their uncle resided. 
Upon entering the room, the sisters discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head, which resulted in two open cuts. The assailant was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were able to distinguish that he was dark-skinned, heavyset man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet he died two days later due to severe head trauma. The home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen from Romano. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Which is insane to me. The, the Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city, with residents living in constant fear of an Axeman attack. Police received a slew of reports in which citizens claimed to have seen an Axeman lurking in New Orleans neighborhoods. A few men even called to report that they had found axes in their backyards. John D'Antonio, a then-retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axeman murders was the same who had killed several individuals in 1911. The retired detective cited similarities in the manner by which the two sets of homicides had been committed as reason to assume they had been conducted by the same individual. D'Antonio described the potential killer as an individual of dual personalities who killed without motive. This type of individual, D'Antonio stated, could have very likely been a normal law-abiding citizen who was often overcome by an overwhelming desire to kill. He later went on to describe the killer as a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Which is kind of, I mean, interesting. I mean, I could see it. I mean, there's times I want to kill people, but then I'm like, mm, I'm going to be a bitch if I go to prison. So. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like, to have absolutely, like, no real motive and still want to kill somebody, like... Well, I think I that's see the, the Dr. Jekyll Hyde... Doc, Dr. Jekyll Hyde theory <laughs> there. <laughs> I think that's the scariest kind of Person. serial killers are the ones that have no motive. Like, no real reasoning. It's just kind of like a wrong place, wrong time type murders. Yeah, like you don't really know what triggered them to make them fully snap like that. Yeah, that's pretty scary. Yeah, and now I'm trying to think of... What is that guy's name? Everybody thought he was so good looking. Good one, Emily. Um, I can't think of his name. He's from Alaska. I have no idea who you're talking about. Let me look it up. Stand by, listeners. Why did it just turn into, like, I'm a little teapot there for a second? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it's not Robert Hansen, because he is hideous. Israel Keys. That guy. Everybody thought he was so good looking. Um, we need to. We could probably do his case at some point, but you know, basically what he would do is he would have kill kits. Like, just imagine if you would put like all the supplies you might need to kill somebody in a five-gallon bucket. He oh, lived in Alaska, yeah. and like, say he was just wanted to go to Georgia. He'd fly to Georgia, rent a car, go around, kind of scope places out. Bury his bury his kill kit, yep. and then whenever he came back into town, he would dig it up, find somebody like I said, wrong place, wrong time, boom, dead. And that's terrifying. Makes you wonder, that's for sure. <laughs> so another victim is, yeah, I'll go butcher this. Uh, Charles Cordomiglia. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> sure. He was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife, Rosie, and infant daughter, Mary, on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana, a New Orleans suburb across the Mississippi River. On the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from their residence. Grocer Iorlando Giordano rushed across the street to investigate... And upon his arrival, he noticed that Charles, his wife, and their daughter had all been attacked by the unknown intruder. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Charles lay on the floor, bleeding profusely. The couple was rushed rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was discovered that both had suffered skull fractures. 
Nothing was stolen from the house, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Yeah, I would hear that. I'm telling you, I... mm -mm. Nope. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of doctors. Upon gaining full consciousness, Rosie made claims that I. Orlando Giordano and his 18-year-old son Frank were responsible for the attacks. I. Orlando, a 69-year-old man, was in the too poor of health to have committed the crimes, and his son Frank, more than six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to have fit through the panel on the back door. So, bitch, you wrong. Charles, <laughs> Charles denied his wife's claims, yet police nonetheless arrested the two and charged them with the murder. So here we are, once again, just like, oh, well, you look like the bad guy, so I'm just going to arrest you. Uh, and they were actually later found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and his father to life in prison. How could you do that to people? I mean, they clearly just said one is too poor of health and the other one was too big. Yet we found you guilty. You're going to get hung and you're just going to stay in prison, old man. Like, you shall hang. Like, that's terrible. Yeah, I couldn't stay with somebody who, like... Uh, just unforgivingly and blatantly, like, lied and said, this is who did it. Yeah. You probably mm-hmm. didn't even see it coming. You're just assuming that that's who it was because oh, that's who found wait. you. Yeah, so... He divorced our ass. <laughs> yeah, Charles divorced his wife after the trial. Almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. What is dead because of your jealousy and spite? Rosie? Yeah, you stupid c- uh, bitch. <laughs> Watch the profanity. Watch your profanities. Her statement was the only evidence against the Giordanos, and they were released from jail shortly thereafter. Wait. Yeah, so they didn't die. Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, still, they had to sit there in prison and deal with all that I bullshit mean, yeah, that just sucks. because of her. That sucks. You suck, Rosie. <clears throat> um, so... She was attacked alongside her husband on March 10th, 1919, while sleeping with her baby in her arms. She was badly wounded by the axe man, but survived the incident. Also, he slept with a baby in her arms. Yeah. Unfortunately, the child was killed while sleeping uh, with a single blow to the back of the neck. So that is how that happened. But yeah, the lady, the wife, Rosie, she's fucking crazy. Rosie, you a lying, no good sack of shit. So anyways. Another victim, Steve Boca, a grocer. There's a lot of grocers in this one little last place. In this little town? Yeah. So Steve Boca was a grocer, and he was attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wielding intruder on August 10th, 1919. Boca awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open like an egg. The grusher ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Janusa, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home, yet, once again, a panel on the back door of the home had been chiseled away. <laughs> Boca recovered from his head injuries, but could not remember any details of the trauma. This attack took place after the emergence of the infamous X-Men letter. So after he told everybody to jazz it out, I guess Steve Boca didn't jazz it out. Nope. So he got cracked. That's what you get. <laughs> She's been playing that jazz. So it looks like we've only got a couple more victims to cover on this case, and then we're going to jump into some suspects. Yes. So another sad victim is Sarah Lohman. She was attacked on the night of September 3rd, 1919. Neighbors came to check on the young woman who had lived alone and broke into the home when Lumen did not answer. Chivalry is not dead. Uh, They discovered the 19-year-old lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. The feels. The intruder (laughs) had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked the woman with a blunt object. A bloody axe was discovered on the front line of front line. Wow, of the front lawn of the building. Lumen recovered from her injuries, yet couldn't recall any details from the attack. 
So it sounds like this man just crept in through the window, said a whacka whacka, and peaced out. <laughs> a whacka whacka. <laughs> <laughs> whacka whacka. So that Mike Pepitone was attacked on the night of October 27, 1919. <laughs> his wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding lunatic was fleeing the scene. Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood splatter, blood spatter, covered the majority of the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Oh, oh no. What a detail to include. Um, Mrs. Pepitone, the mother of six children, whoo, uh, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. The Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. It was probably because he thought that she probably seen more of him. And so he was like, oh, I gotta go back to hell, praise satanic whatever, and never come back to Earthland. She's like, oh, he's probably like, oh, shit, Miss Pepitone, you got half the beginner study school class in your house. <laughs> shit. Why you got all these damn kids? <laughs> so that is all of the victims. Now we get to jump into possible suspects, which was probably not that many. It's not. <clears throat> uh, so crime writer Colin Wilson speculates the Axeman could have been Joseph Momfrey, a man shot to death in Los Angeles in December of 1920 by the widow of Mike Pepitone, the Axeman's last known victim. What? Wilson's theory has been widely repeated in other true crime books and websites. However, true crime writer Michael Newton searched New Orleans and Los Angeles public police and court records as well as newspaper archives and failed to find any evidence of a man with the name Joseph Momfrey or a similar name having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. But let's be honest here. But then where does that come from? It just doesn't come from thin air. Well here's the other thing. How often I mean would court records and stuff like that just disappear? disappear? (gasps) But look at the letters in his name. M-O-M-F-R-E. What if he... What if you change it to F-R-O-M-M-E? Could be Joseph Fromm. And that's the other thing. I don't care about that person. I mean, (laughs) it could have just been an entirely fake name. Yeah. You know? I mean... Yeah. mm -hmm. Hmm. So, Newton was not able to find any information that Miss Pepitone identified in some sources as Esther Albano... And in others, simply as, quote, a woman who claimed to be Pepitone's widow, end quote, was arrested, tried, or convicted for such a crime, or indeed had even been in California. So Newton notes that Momfrey was not an unusual name or surname in New Orleans at the time of the crimes, and it appears that there actually may have been an individual named Joseph Momfrey or Mumfrey in New Orleans who had a criminal history and who may have been connected with organized crime. However, local records for the period are not extensive enough to allow confirmation of this or to positively identify the individual. Wilson's explanation is an urban legend, and there's no more evidence now on the identity of the killer than there was at the time of the crimes. And to the alleged, quote, early victims of the Axeman, an Italian couple named Schiambra or Schiambra. Let me, let me tell my... Uh, Inner Italian. My inner soprano. Schiambra. <laughs> that sounded like real Texas. <laughs> Anyways, they were shot by an intruder in their lower ninth ward home in the early morning hours of May 16, 1912. The male Schiambra survived while his wife died. In newspaper accounts, the prime suspect is referred to by the name of Momfrey more than once. While radically different than the Axeman's usual modus operandi, if Joseph Momfrey was indeed the Axeman, the Schiambras may well have been early victims of the future, future serial killer. And according to scholar Richard Warner, the chief suspect in the crimes was Frank the Doc Momfrey, who lived from 1875 to 1921, who used alias Leon Joseph Momfrey or Manfrey. Yeah, so, huh, you never know. Was he a real person, or was he just, like, some 
non-earth land spiritual being who just loves some jazz non-earth land my septum ring is stuck to my nose ring and it's pulling sorry <laughs> it's a tragedy so thus in lies the tale of the axe man play that jazz get your jazz hands out don't and now we're going to give you a short break and listen to this random ass music while we take a break of our own to give you the next topic we will discuss, which is Mr. Kroll. Does it get easier? No, no. Yes, yes, yes. It gets easier. We are back. Yep, we here. We're gonna talk about Mr. Cruel. I don't really have a question to set you up for this one because it's just a fucked up situation. Hit me with it. Uh, Did the dingo get your baby? (laughs) (laughs) Oh god. Okay. Uh, Let's just talk about this. Australian serial childbreakers who attacked three girls in the northern and eastern suburbs of Melbourne, Victoria in the late 1980s and early 1990s and is a prime suspect in the abduction and murder of a fourth girl, Carmine Chong. The Sun newspaper gave the perpetrator the moniker of Mr. Cruel, which was adopted by the rest of the media after police described a serial home invasion rapist in November 1987 as, quote, Super cool and super cruel. End quote. Who describes anything like (laughs) Yeah, it was a home invasion rapist. He's super cool and super cruel. Like, what? (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) At the time, police believed the same perpetrator was responsible for three rapes. The first in 1985 of a woman. The second in 1987 of a girl. And the third in 1987 of a woman. Um, yeah. Super cool, man. It's super super cool. fucking cool. He has never been identified, and his three confirmed attacks and suspected murder remain unsolved cold cases. There is a reward of Australian $200,000 for the two abductions. 
<clears throat> and in April 2016, 25 years after the 1991 abduction and murder of Carmen Chan, Chan, as, I don't know how we say it. Anyway, Carmen Chan, whatever. Victoria police increased the reward for information that leads to Mr. Cruel's arrest and conviction from 100000 to a million. Damn. Whoa. That's a big jump. And that's ultimately when the Sun newspaper gave him the moniker of Mr. Cruel. Ugh. Is when they were trying to get leads and information. But apparently everybody in Australia got some tight lips because... Yeah, he ain't they, been they trying to come up with it, trying to get that money. Police described him as highly intelligent. He meticulously planned each attack, conducting surveillance on the victims and their families, ensured he left no forensic traces, protected his identity by covering his face at all times, and left red herrings to divert family and or police attention. He was soft-spoken, and his behavior was unhurried, as he took a break during an attack in a victim's house to eat a meal. He threatened to kill his victims with a large hang knife or a handgun. And maybe that's why they said he's quote-unquote super cool and super cruel. Maybe they're talking about, like, his demeanor. Because he's really, you know, how people are like, you're just calm, cool, collected. Yeah, laid back. Maybe that's what they mean. It's like, homie just got up in the freezer. Got him your hungry man meals. <laughs> Put it in the microwave the whole time you're sitting there pissing yourself <clears throat> thinking you're going to be stabbed or shot. Yeah, but I still think if that's what they were going for, they shouldn't have just been, like, super cool and super cool <laughs> home invasion. Like, oh my God. like that's terrible. Wait for the next merch drop. <laughs> we're going to make some cool. super cool and super, super cruel, cruel tickets. Or oh. ticket stickers. <laughs> I think I meant to say stickers. I came up with like, I was thinking you can stick them, stick it, tickets, whatever. Tickets. Anyways. So, the crimes. The first one on August 22nd, 1987 in Lower Plenty. A man broke into a family home at 4 a.m. armed with a knife and a gun. He tied the hands and feet of both parents and locked them in a wardrobe. He tied the son to a bed and then raped the 11-year-old daughter. He also caught the phone lines, so they couldn't reach out to anybody. Well, then he had them locked or tied, like... And maybe he cut the phone lines before he even entered the home. We don't know. There was very little information about the actual crimes. So they're nice, short, sweet little... Yeah, because the next one was August... August. (laughs) On the 27th of December in 1988 in Ringwood, he broke into the back door of a house at 5.30 a.m. armed with a knife and a small handgun. He bound and gagged the parents and demanded money. He grabbed their 10-year-old daughter, put tape over her eyes, a ball gag in her mouth, and abducted her. She was released 18 hours later on the grounds of the Bayswater High School. So, it's just like a I mean, that's kidnapping. I mean, did he even get the money? Like, it didn't even, it doesn't even tell you whether or not he got any money. No. That's crazy. I mean, I don't, and it's hard to say if he even asked for money. I mean, it sounds like he just took her, did whatever he needed to do with I her, mean, says and he let her go. Money. Huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I mean, yeah. So who knows? Huh. Hard okay. to say. But the next one took place on July 3rd of 1990 in Canterbury. He broke into a house at 11.30 p.m. and tied and gagged a 13-year-old girl. He placed tape over her eyes, disabled the phones, and searched for money. He then drove her to another house and molested her for 50 hours before releasing her at a power substation in a suburb of Kew. Bro, that's two days and two hours. Uh, yes. Oh, sh- straight molestation. That's terrible. And, you know, maybe they left out all the nitty-gritty details because of how terrible it was. Uh, Or because it was children. That, and and she was, she's a minor, so they probably, which I, but I mean, it doesn't stop some of them. Some of them you can find some pretty nasty, like the Sylvia Likens case. Yeah. (gasps) But, if you notice, with these three, so he, the first one, he... Didn't take as much time. The second one, he took more time. You know, went from 
probably enough time to break in, do a steed and leave, to 18 hours, to the third one, where it extended all the way to 50 hours. Yeah. So the thought of him being calm, cool, and collected and taking his time is probably a very true statement. Yeah. Because it just gets longer each time. And he clearly wasn't concerned or worried that he would be caught if he's taking that much time. And it's hard to say where he took, I mean, where was this other house that he took this last girl to? Right. How far away was that house from a substation? <clears throat> right. I mean, it's it's hard to say. So, I mean, that's really all we have. That's about it. About the actual uh, crimes. Then we just dive into what little bit of information we have. Um, regarding the investigation. So, Mr. Krull is believed to have videotaped or perhaps taken still photographs of his attacks. And detectives believe that if he is still alive, he will have either kept the tapes and the photos and will still collect and possibly swap child pornography. Um, they say he almost certainly continues to collect pornography through the internet and may communicate with children using chat lines. Um, his plan, he plans his crimes. For example, in one case, he abducted a girl and told her he would release her in exactly 50 hours, which he did. Um, and he did. And he did. I, he I did, did. He did. I'm stuck. I don't know what's wrong. It's just my brain's not operating correctly. Um, he bathed his victims carefully, with one of them describing the act as, quote, like a mother washing a baby. And in one case, he took a second set of clothes from a girl's home to dress her before she was free. And in another, he dumped the girl dressed in garbage bags so police could not test her original clothes. The modus operandi was the same in the home invasion uh, slash abductions. In the three attacks and the victim statements provided confirmation to police it was the same offender. So, I mean, it's not like he was a complete fool. No, he um, very much planned it right, all out. He, for one girl, he brought clothes. The other one, he dumped in garbage bags. He bathed so, them. Yeah, he bathed them, made sure they were clean before they went home. Um, which is crazy. Yeah. Two of his victims were able to provide police with details of the house where they were kept. <clears throat> Both were shackled to a bed with a rough neck brace. Ugh. One told detectives she heard planes landing, leading police to believe the house was on one of the flight paths to Melbourne Airport. The police established the Spectrum Task Force in May of 1991, dedicated to catching Mr. Krull. The task force searched 30,000 homes and interviewed 27,000 suspects over the attacks at a cost of $3.8 million. God almighty. <clears throat> there was a $300,000 reward for information provided to the task force, which led to the arrest of Mr. Krull. The Spectrum Task Force was disbanded in January of 1994. Police have admitted that some evidence retrieved from the crime scenes at the time has mysteriously gone missing. One missing item is the tape used to bind one of the victims, which could have provided DNA samples of Mr. Krull using new forensic technologies today. So, once again, we just have police with, I mean, it sounds like they wasted a bunch of money and lost a bunch of shit. Yeah, well, it sounds like they also put a lot of the man hours into it. If it costs, if it costs, you know, <clears throat> Australia three point eight million to do the investigation, you gotta think the the manpower, the overtime, and everything else that they were getting just to try and find this piece of shit. And I have no idea how many people were on said task force or anything like that, but right, I would imagine it has to be a lot of people if you're searching thirty thousand homes <clears throat> and interviewing, interviewing twenty seven thousand people. Yeah. yeah. Um, on December 14th, 2010, Victoria Police announced that a new task force had been established about eight months earlier, following to substantial new intelligence. The new task force has been reviewing both the Spectrum Task Force investigation and some new leads that have come in the last year or so. In April 2016, in the lead up to the 25th anniversary of Corman's murder, Victoria Police released that was confusing. Victoria Police released a 1994 dossier nicknamed the Sierra Files to the Herald Sun newspaper containing intimate details of the case that had previously not been released to the public. The dossier, which had been prepared with the assistance of the FBI, contained information about seven possible suspects. The newspaper stated that they had obtained the names of these suspects 
and also attempted to contact them for information to varying degrees of success. Victoria Police subsequently increased the reward for information to one million. So you can see how the reward is just gradually going up with, you know, how long it's taken them to get anywhere. Um, and again, especially since they don't have anybody still. Yeah, and people aren't talking. That's the other thing. I mean, surely to God, someone would have to have seen something. I mean, it's like I always say, you can't go anywhere without someone seeing you. Exactly. Whether you know them or not. I mean, surely releasing details about a case that was previously not released, you know, you sit there, you're reading that, and you think, oh, well, that does sound familiar. I remember that from, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Right. And then you could have provided at least a tip or something. So, fast forward to 2021, former Victorian police homicide detective Ron Ittles stated that he was confident in the identity of Mr. Quirrell due to a conversation with a credible source in the year 2000. Idle stated that the source identified it. (laughs) (laughs) Idle stated the source identified this person as a former customer of the Chan family restaurant and someone that lived in Eltham near several of the Mr. Cruel associated attacks. But again, nobody knows. There's nothing. Uh, there has been some earlier crimes. Um, there had been varying reports by the media of suspected attacks prior to 1987. The police have never released specific details of suspected attacks. And Detective Stephen Fontana answered a journalist's question in 2001 on earlier attacks. Attacks. <laughs> on earlier attacks, quote, that were just, quote, that there just wasn't enough known about him and he didn't want to speculate, end quote. In a 2019 television documentary, God, that sounds weird saying television. Um, <clears throat> in a 2019 TV documentary, retired detective Chris O'Connor said that there was, quote, broadly speaking, perhaps up to a dozen, end quote, victims for the investigation. The first documented victim was in 1985. During her assault, the attacker told her that, Quote, my liberty, my freedom is more important than your life. End quote. So they're speculating that these attacks probably started as early as 1985, but didn't really pick up enough attention until he actually killed somebody. That's crazy. But I mean, that just goes to show, I mean, how often do women, or men for that matter, get raped and nobody knows mm-hmm. well guys um, I'd officially cross Australia off your bucket list because you don't want to run to uh, Mr. Super Cool and Super Cruel yeah because he's probably more likely still alive and just walking them streets mm-hmm. free as a bee <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for bearing with us guys it feels good to be back in the studio. Hmm. Yeah. AKA the guest room at Kayla's house. <laughs> Woo! <Woo-woo>! Woo! <laughs> uh, we get back to getting into the flow of one a week. We keep trying to tell ourselves that we're going to double down and record two separate episodes every never time happens. we record, and we never do it. Um, <clears throat> but maybe one day. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. But as always, stay safe. Don't die and. Embrace the hot mess express that is the two changes. Remember to tune in every Monday now at 8 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review. Catch us on Facebook at 2 Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. 
If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message there.